Galatians message number two. This is called Heavenly Flourishing. All right, we're going to finish out chapter one today. Last week we started, we're going to finish out chapter one. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, then we're going to see what's going on in the text and see what the implication is, all right? So starting in verse 11, if you have a Bible, go there. If you don't, there's some on that table behind Lex. There it is. Um, we're going to do from verse 11, because we left off in 10, up to 24. Here's what Paul has to say. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy the church um, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born again, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said he used to persecute us and now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy verse 24 this one's pretty key and they glorified God because of me oh well isn't that nice so here's what's going on got a question okay what compels us and what draws us and what impresses us like what things when we look at them does our heart leap out of our chest and we start being drawn to that thing in our bodies like need a couple minutes to catch up what sort of things are our hearts and our souls and our spirits going after before our minds even know what's going on? Like, what compels us? What draws us forward? What, when we look at it, do we go, Oh, I like that. I enjoy that. Something about that. I want to be like that. I want to do that. I want to be a part of that. What is that for us? Well, it's probably a little bit different for lots of different people. But that's the question that we're going to ask uh, in sermon. So what's going on in this passage of scripture? 
What's going on is there were some earthly disputes, right? There were false teachers influencing the church of Galatia, right? And they were saying things against Paul. And the text leads us to understand, like you don't have to exactly read in between the lines, but because in the first verse of this uh, letter, he says, I am Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, not by man, but by God. They're questioning his apostleship, right? And then again, when it gets down to verse 12, he reiterates like, now I'm preaching to you a gospel and repeats that same thing, not of men, not the gospel of man, but a gospel that was revealed to me as Jesus Christ was revealed to me. And you're like, okay, so what's going on here? Well, the thing is, these false teachers were influencing the church of Galatia. They were coming in and they were like injecting their theology and they were spreading rumors like this. In addition to the salvation of Jesus, what you also need is circumcision. <laughs> John, you can't get away from me. Where is Elijah? Where is Elijah? I did get a little snip snip. <laughs> he used the clippers, though. <laughs> okay. Teachers coming into the churches of Galatia. And now this is addressed to the churches of Galatia, not the single church. There's no mega church called the Church of Galatia. There are churches in the area of Galatia. And this false teaching seems to be like permeating not just like a specific community, but like this area. Like it's a thought current within this area and it's kind of infecting the beliefs and the trust in Jesus and the gospel and the, the way, the behavior of the churches of Galatia, right? So what they're preaching is a gospel different than the one Paul preached. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ and him alone. What they're saying is in addition to Jesus... You also need to do something to have salvation. You need to do a little snip snip, right? And here's the thing about the false teachers, and just false teachers in general, but particularly these false teachers, we see this example. False teachers tend to say things like, we are the only ones that have the true gospel. And unless you follow the gospel that I preach, you're not following the true gospel. That's why Paul goes directly against that and says, no, 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 listen. Because this gospel that I preach to you is not a gospel of man. It's not something that I've fabricated. It's not something that I've made up. This is the gospel of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'm not coming to you and say my God. Paul's not coming to the Galatians and saying my gospel is the only gospel and believe that one. On the contrary, he's saying this is the gospel that was revealed by Jesus Christ. And that's the one you are to follow. This is the gospel that is made available to everyone and anyone who believe, who would believe. 
So the true gospel is a gospel that is available to everyone. A false gospel or some other gospel like the gospel of Jesus plus circumcision is not a true gospel. And they're essentially saying, if you want to follow this gospel, you have to be like us. Right? And Paul, who was a Jew, who was a practicer of Judaism, would ideally be like one of the first ones to jump on board with this whole idea. Like, because it would set him apart. It would give him some sort of status because he's practiced Judaism this whole time. Now these false teachers, they're questioning Paul. And the interesting thing about false teachers is that false teachers tend to call other people false teachers. Right? These false teachers, the Judaizers, the ones who want to turn Christians and make them more Jewish, they're Judaizers, we want to Judaize you, you know? These false teachers that are teaching a different gospel are accusing Paul of what they're guilty of. They're saying, Paul is the false teacher. And Paul does not refute them with, no, you're a false teacher, although they are. He doesn't play that earthly dispute game. He doesn't play on their level. What he appeals to is the authority of Jesus Christ, and he points to the truth. He doesn't fight fire with fire. He fights fire with the Spirit. He says, like, I can imagine how it was affecting his ego when all these people are speaking against his teachings and against his authority and against his influence. I bet his... His inclination would be to be outraged and to yell at them and be like, No, I'm an apostle. You don't get it. But he just goes, I'm an apostle of God, not of man, but of God. And the gospel I preach to you is not of man, but of God. In this gospel that I preach to you, there's no other gospel besides this one. So don't turn from any gospel that you've originally heard because somebody else is telling you a different one. Now, if I was looking for reason to brag, this is things that Paul is talking about, if I was looking to establish my authority by earthly means, I would tell you all my earthly accomplishments. Right? I persecuted the church violently. I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Right? I advanced in Judaism far beyond my years. I was ahead of people that were my age. So if we want to talk about an authority that can be accomplished by works, that can be accomplished by my own very might, if we want to talk about that, I've got it. But I'm going to throw all that aside and say that all of that pales in comparison to the authority that comes from Jesus. There's nothing else that can match it. You see, by Paul's claims, he could have 
been a self-made man. According to his work and his might and his having it togetherness, he could have been a self-made man. He had all the things going for him. Like he could sit there and recite the Torah off the top of his head all day long. And he could have ongoing legal conversations with the great minds of his day, the great intellects, and keep that conversation going on. Like people in this day in Judaism would have looked at Paul and been like, he is a fine specimen, right? Like all the Jewish mamas and papas with Jewish daughters were looking at Paul and telling their daughters like, Paul, that one, go, do it. You know, wink, wink. And then they're inviting Paul over for like dinners and trying to like win his affections for their daughter. Like, oh, Paul, you're such a good looking man. Oh my gosh, you're so smart. Tell us about the Psalms one more time, right? And they're like, they're flattering him. They're flattering Paul. But is flattery grounds for apostolic authority for preaching the truth and saying there is no other truth besides this gospel. No. In fact, he throws all of that away. He gets rid of the flattery and he goes, listen. The only reason I'm here is because of grace. In fact, I was on my way on the road to Damascus to go persecute the church of God violently to put an end to this church because they would threaten our Judaism. Right? Yet on this road to Damascus, on his way to go persecute this church, came the interruption of God he became so blinded that he couldn't see anything I would almost say this that he could see for the first time because he was blinded by the glory of Jesus he was blinded by heavenly things and because it was because he saw this bright glory of Jesus in front of his face that he goes, yeah, none of this other stuff, this self-made man, this earthly stuff, this stuff that I can do in my mind, none of this matters. Because this earth-sided man was blinded by heaven. And from Damascus, he went straight into Arabia. Like, he went out in the desert, like... This is so profound that he needs to go get away and like chew on this for a little bit. He needs to go process this. He needs to get with like the personal therapist inside his head out in the desert and like talk about things as he lays back on the long sofa and be like, what was your childhood like? And he's like, well, circumcised on the eighth day. Um, What else? Um, No, I don't know. (laughs) 
that would be a funny childhood. Anyway, so he goes out to Arabia to process this stuff. And he's out of commission for three years. Three years he's out of commission. Now think about all this progress that he was talking about, about making in Judaism, about impressing people, about people wanting to flatter him, about all of this stuff, this self-made man stuff. All of this progress halted. Stop. The progress ceases. And he goes off into the desert and he's out of commission for three years. And people are probably wondering, like, where is this dude? Where is, where'd he go? Like, he was coming to all our parties and impressing us with his intellect and doing all these things and keeping all the laws. And his hands and fingernails were cleaner than anybody I've ever seen. This guy. Out of commission. Progress halted. And for three years, the Holy Spirit ministered to him and revealed to him the secrets of heaven. The mysterious things. Those things that we all have, like if it's Q&A time, and we all want to know, like, those thousand burning questions that we don't know about heaven. The Holy Spirit's revealing those things to Paul. Lucky guy, right? And because he's seen heaven, and because he's seen Jesus, and because he's transformed by these realities... He comes back and he meets with Peter, says Cephas, but that's Peter, Cephas, Peter. Meets with Peter for 15 days, just a day over two weeks, right? Now, you can't know everything about a person in two weeks. Like, you can't, if you're going to consider him as a new father for Christianity, like, is 15 days long enough? Like, half a month. Like, you you might not even know his middle name in 15 days. But in 15 days, Peter, who is spiritually minded and able to discern spiritual things, looked at the evidence in Paul's life and says, Yep, this is it, guys. This is the new apostle. Now, I haven't investigated and dug into all the things about his life, but what I can tell you is that in 15 days, this guy blew me away. He was the arch nemesis of our movement. He was like the Joker to Batman. He was the guy out there like, ha <laughs> ha! Right, looking crazy. <laughs> that was Paul. And people are hearing rumors within the church that this guy is persecuting the church of God violently. Man. And in 15 days for this guy to show up at Peter's doorstep... Say, listen, I think the the Lord has revealed things to me. 
What is, what is your auto response to seeing the Joker show up at your doorstep? Nope. Call the police. Get him out of here. Right? But Paul was so different. Paul was so transformed that as Peter looked at his life in just 15 days, he goes, yes, he is to be an apostle. He is to be a father of the church. He is to be a missionary. He is to be one that we send out and entrust him with the message of the gospel and with raising up new pastors and leaders and elders and deacons. We're going to trust this guy to go to specific areas and raise up churches and raise up groups and raise up worshipers of God because he's so different. He's so transformed. He's so not trying to impress anybody. He's so transparent. He's not even bragging about all these things that he's done in Judaism. Like his life is infested. Uh, maybe not infested. Infected. Infested sounds weird. <laughs> sounds like a goobery sore on your arm. His life is infected with the gospel. That when we look at him, he reminds us so much of the Jesus that we hung out with for three years. When I look at Paul, I see Jesus. And that's why the apostles could take this man who's violently persecuting the church, be like, yep, he's on our team now. You see... A transformed life is compelling. It's, it draws us. It's wonderful to behold. Yet so much of us, so many of us are afraid to be transformed. Because we're afraid that if we change and are different, people will know that up to this point, I've needed help. Up to this point, I haven't been as right as I like people to think I am. If all change, if I change, if I transform, if I become someone different in light of Christ, if I do that, I have to admit that what I was doing before was wrong. But those afraid to transform and afraid to change are still stuck on works are still stuck on being a self-made man. Are still stuck on, I must help Jesus in my salvation. 
You see, a transformed life is not man-made. It's made by revelation. A transformed life is not about me deciding I need to get things together or something like that. Or somebody is nagging on me enough. Or somebody is pointing out my faults and imperfections and flaws so much that I just don't want to listen to them anymore. If that's our vision, our vision is still man-made. But when we see Jesus the way that Paul saw Jesus, when we see heaven the way that Paul saw heaven, we can't be the same. See, these Judaizers that were looking to add something on top of the salvation of Jesus, they hadn't seen Jesus. They hadn't seen his beauty. They hadn't beheld heaven. They're too busy glorifying earthly things. Their life is consumed with this, like, one-upsmanship. Like, anything you can do, I can do better. Right? I can do anything better than you. I had to finish it. It felt incomplete. Their life is marked by this one-upsmanship. And Paul was playing this game really well. He was advancing beyond his years. He could look at others, other people because of his self-made, man-made perfection, perfection, cleaning the outside of the cup, and look at other people and be like, well, sucks to be you. Paul had that luxury. And these people, these Judaizers, these false teachers... They're trying to claim that same luxury by saying there's something that you need in addition to Jesus. Because we have the upper hand if there's something you need and we have it. We have leverage If you can't come to Jesus of your own accord and he could make you clean. We've got something that you need. And we'll show you. Come over here. Just take a couple minutes. Real quick. You won't even feel a thing. That's a lie of the enemy. That there's something needed in addition to Jesus. That Jesus is not enough. That there's something that you could do by your own might that would make you more right with God. But then Paul says this at the very end, verse 24. He says, And they glorified God because of me. Wow, that sounds pretty proud, right? 
could be boastful, right? They glorify God because of me. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I threw away anything I could boast about. And I let Jesus be my righteousness. And I lived the transformed life. I admitted that what I was doing before was not getting me anywhere. I allowed him to come and transform me from the inside out. Not just make the outside clean, but make the heart, the calloused heart, the rock solid heart, soft and malleable. Repentant, humble, contrite. They glorified God because Paul was transformed. A transformed life is compelling. A transformed life makes people look and go, What? What is the purpose of a transformed life? Is it for our own sake that we can brag? Do we call ourselves transformed, but still operate according to works in such a way that I can show off my Jesusness more than you can? The purpose of a transformed life. The reason that I would allow Jesus to transform me, the reason that hopefully you would allow Jesus to transform you, is that people would look and glorify God. Not glorify you, but glorify God. The purpose of the transformed life creates heavenly flourishing. People who have got over themselves quite enough In fact, maybe even sick of themselves in their selfish ways. And allow Jesus to transform them from the inside out. That people would look at their lives, and it's not a a thing that you would look at and glorify me, but it's a thing that you would look at that transformation and glorify Jesus. The transformed life becomes a compelling thing that people want to follow it. Not follow for the person's sake, but follow for Jesus' sake. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you're like, wow, I don't think I could say that. I don't think I could say that. That feels like a big burden to carry around. But I pray that I would become the kind of person that could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The transformed life creates heavenly flourishing. That all of a sudden these people transformed by Jesus, that when you look at them, people are not seeing Jesus. They're not seeing you. They're not seeing Andrew. They're seeing Jesus. And we can be Jesus to one another. And these small pockets and communities of people... Being Jesus to one another creates heavenly flourishing, creates life abundantly, creates a life giving people more concern for others than for themselves. 
and a community, a group, a collective of people doing that all at the same time and glorifying God in the process, heavenly flourishing, that spreads. That's compelling. That draws us. We see that grace and we want it. We're drawn into the mystery. Paul calls the church a mystery. People are drawn into a really good mystery novel, right? Is our community, our church, is our body operating in such a way that people are drawn to it like a moth to the flame? People are drawn to our love and to our grace the way that Paul was like bent on his knees when he saw heaven. When people see us, do they see Jesus or do they just see us? When people see us, do they see heaven taking place? Or earthly disputes, fighting fire with fire, fighting flesh with flesh, arguing about things that don't even matter. You're a false teacher. No, you're a false teacher. Well, you can't call me a false teacher because you're a false teacher. So I just took away your authority, you false teacher. I love you, Andrew. Instead, earthly disputes are put aside. Heaven comes into its place. And these lives are transformed, made difference to the glory of God and the good of others. And I'm okay with being different and being transformed and saying that maybe I didn't do everything right before. And it's more encouraging when I do it and people do it with me. Worship is more powerful when I don't do it by myself, but we do it collectively. When the spirit within every one of us leaps out of our hearts and out of our mouths and sings praises to God for us. And all of these people with that same spirit inside of them, singing that same tune, giving the same glory to God. Man, I would want to be a part of that. I would want to be a part of a place that's doing that. I would be drawn there. I would be compelled to go there. Nobody would have to twist my arm to go there. Because Jesus is there. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you came and showed us what heavenly flourishing is like and what it's all about. God, help us to be people that are living the transformed life. And God, I pray that in a way that is more than we can accomplish by our might, by your spirit, you would accomplish something that is so compelling about the transformed life that it would draw people to your son. God, I pray that we could be people that could say, God was glorified because of me. Not because of what I did, but because of how I lived. So God, I ask that you 
glorify yourself. You bring glory to yourself by transforming us. I pray that you create heavenly flourishing in our midst. And God, let this be a place that uplifts Jesus and that draws people to Jesus and that lives for something besides ourselves. In your son's name, amen.